Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Rebecca Donner. Her essays, reportage, and reviews have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times Book Forum, Guernica, and The Believer. All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days is her third and latest book. She's also the author of a novel, Sunset Terrace, and Burnout, a graphic novel about eco-terrorism. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Maris. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca, I, I feel like in all the frequent troubles of our days, you don't talk about your childhood necessarily, um, but, but you let us imagine what it was like, um, that, that you had this aunt who your grandmother kind of idolized, it seemed. Yeah. And you grew up with the lore about her. Is that fair to say? I would say so, except it wasn't, um, it, it didn't really surround me. It was more of a kind of spectral presence. Mm -hmm. I was aware that I had, uh, she's, she's my great, great aunt. It was my grandmother's aunt. And that, that there was, that, that she was a, a prominent figure in people's imaginations and memories, but nobody wanted to talk about her. And so when I, my first memory was when I was um, nine and, and my great grandmother wanted to measure my height as all the children's heights were measured against her kitchen wall. And, and, and after she put a ruler on my head and, and made the mark on the wall, I stood back and, and then I saw a very faint mark with an M next to it. And I asked her, Who, who's that? And she said, Mildred. So that was the first time I heard her name, but she didn't want to tell me anything more. I just knew that she was my great, great aunt. And, um, and for me, the mystery of Mildred began right then. And then when I was 16, my grandmother told me more. And it was then that I learned that, that she had been in the resistance and that she had been beheaded by guillotine on Hitler's direct order. And, and this was the time um, when my grandmother gave me Mildred's letters that she wrote to the family when she was in uh, Germany and, um, and her, her family was sort of scattered across the Midwest, but primarily in, in Wisconsin and, and in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And, um, and, uh, and, and basically my grandmother urged me to tell her story. And so at that point I knew that I wanted to be a writer um, and I promised her that I would. But, and, but it, it's a completely different undertaking than, than your two other books. To, to write fiction and then get into the form of biography seems like a big switch. Yes, it certainly was. Um, I've always been a voracious reader and I was particularly drawn to this period because I knew that, that I had a, a relative who, who played a role in, in the history of, of, of the German resistance uh, and, and that it was quite unusual because she was the only American in the leadership of the German resistance um, according to historians, but historians had gotten her wrong on so many other facts. And there are so many rumors and misapprehensions that swirl around the story of Mildred. And, and so I, when I decided that I really wanted to begin writing this book in earnest, I, I made the artistic choice to, to write a work of narrative nonfiction uh, rather than historical fiction. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to uh, approach this biography 
however, in an unconventional way. And, um, and, and so I, I felt that the power of the story is that it's true. Yeah. And, uh, and so why fictionalize it? But I should, I should mention that a number of editors, uh, when, when we were mm. shopping the book around, said, Rebecca, because I had written two works of fiction, uh, unsurprisingly, they said, well, why don't you just make this historical fiction? And I said, absolutely not. I'm, um, I, I, I believe that, um, that it's a true story and it needs to be treated as such. And one editor actually told me to swim in my own lane. Whoa. <laughs> hey there. You should swim in your own lane. And that <laughs> kind of fired me up um, and, and made me all the more uh, dedicated to this idea that this would be a rigorously researched work of narrative nonfiction and, and that I would visit our archives in, in numerous countries. And so that's what I did. I mean, not only did I research the, the, the National Archives and, and um, the Library of Congress. And, and I also uh, visited institutional archives across the United States, but also I went to Berlin, I went to London, and I worked with a, a historian based in Moscow to access espionage files. Basically espionage files are almost all under lock and key, but, but there are some exceptions. Um, and I was able to, to then uh, incorporate that research in my, um, in, in my narrative about Mildred Harnock and her involvement with the German resistance, which included working as a spy. So that's why I, I, I felt that it was important to tell that story as fully as possible. And, um, and so uh, I, as I started writing the book, then it started to take shape in my mind as a, as a kind of fusion of biography espionage thriller and scholarly <laughs> detective story. Yes. Um, and, and tell me a little bit about, I love your um, devotion to telling this true story. Tell me about the parts that you felt comfortable imagining a little bit. And, and I like narratively, there's, there's you, you would say in the book, like picture Mildred doing, right. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, cause, right. cause yeah. Yeah, I mean, I felt, I felt it very, I, I wanted to give her a kind of Mrs. Dalloway moment early on in, in the mm. book and show her beginning her day. And, and I wanted the reader to, to experience a, a morning with her. And I had um, letters, again, my, that my grandmother had given me uh, that, that helped me with details such as what does her apartment look like? How, what did her rugs look like? What were the colors mm -hmm. on them? Uh, I also knew that from a Plunza prison questionnaire uh, that she filled out right before her execution and she had to list all of her possessions. And so I was able to, and she lists some of her furnishings. And so I was able to, um, in my mind, uh, furnish the place and, and put her in it. Um, I. I knew that she, there are details in, in that scene in particular uh, where I talk about the sock that, that one heel is wearing thin. I know that because of a letter and I know mm. that her mother sent her, you know, sent her another sock to replace it. I, I knew her, her routine um, and I knew what the windows looked like. And, mm. and I knew that also because of my interviews with her 11 year old courier uh, and I interviewed him when he was 89 and he was really probably the last person who was alive who had direct knowledge uh, of her espionage and, and, and indeed participated in it and I can tell you more we can talk more about that yeah but um so I had all these different sort of ways of of 
uh, of looking in on her on this morning. But I have a, I also followed a very strict set of rules for myself. I never, I never imagined what she was thinking. I, I would, if, if I say she thought this, I, I know that because there's a letter that said that she thought that, I, or I know that because somebody who knew her wrote about it in a memoir uh, and, and said Mildred felt this way or thought that. Um, there, there were few survivors in her group, almost everyone was executed, but there were a couple exceptions. And fortunately, um, uh, they wrote memoirs and, um, and gave post-war testimonies. And so, and so the, uh, that, that first chapter, good morning, sunshine, um, yeah. is what it, you know, that's, and then I also thought, I mean, fortunately, when this is in the early stages of writing, I thought, well, it can be any day, it could be any morning, um, where I show her waking up, but I actually need to, uh, I, it has to be a significant day in some way. And in fact, um, uh, I was able to find that um, and, and, and identify a particular day when she started working at this night school for adults. And uh, she was so excited and she wrote about this to her mother. And, and, and this was after she had gotten fired from the University of Berlin for her, for being outspoken about her uh, antipathy toward the Nazi party and toward Hitler in particular. And so after she was fired, she quickly got a position at this night school for adults. And so th that's the morning that, that, that I was able to write about. And, um, but yes, so I, I, I say, picture her, picture her at the end of that chapter. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I ask the reader, you know, picture her walking down the stairs, picture her swinging her satchel. Anybody looking at her would assume that she was just an American graduate student, nothing more. Um, and so I do those, I, I did make use of those, those kinds of, um, formulations and that was my way of just sort of just getting right up to the to the border between nonfiction and fiction but yeah. not quite crossing it um but every time she says something anything that appears in quotes anytime anytime um that you know that is drawn directly from a from a letter a post-war testimony um a memoir and and as i get i said again you know same goes for if i say she felt she thought right and so yeah so i was able to hold myself to those very strict rules and then and then also just just get very close to that border. And it was a risk. It was an artistic risk. I thought I'm doing all of this extension, extensive research and bringing news to this story mm -hmm. uh, and, and sharing facts and uncovering facts um, that no one has done. So I, you know, no, no one yet has written about some of the things I've, that I write about in this book. Um, and so conventional historians will be interested in what I have uncovered, but conventional historians will not necessarily be happy with my narrative strategy. <laughs> That's what I thought. In, in fact, I've gotten so many letters from people saying, my God, this is, I, I love what you do. So, um, so it was a risk worth taking. That's great. Discover your holiday love story with Audible. Listen to exclusive stories, original podcasts, and more. Enjoy brand new Audible originals like Hold Me Closer, Tony Danzig, There's Something About Mary, and Christmas Podcast. Woof. Keep the fire going with romance favorites like Eight Winter Nights and Nick and Noel's Christmas Playlist. Tis the season to get cozy. Go to audible.com slash holiday romance. Listen now, only from Audible. Let's go back to Mildred, because even... As a Midwestern girl in the 20s and 30s, she was uh, different. Yes, she was. 
<laughs> was different. Tell, tell me about her, uh, her life in academia and her reading and her beliefs. Sure. Yeah. So was she, well, so she was born in 1902. She was the daughter of a, of a suffragette. Her mother was, uh, mm-hmm. uh, believed very strongly in women's rights. Um, her mother had a 10th grade education and, uh, basically was at some point had to teach herself typing because her husband, Mildred's father was this ne'er-do-well alcoholic, uh, horse trader. And, and, uh, and, and he would hold a job as a butcher or an insurance salesman, uh, but never for very long. And, and so, uh, then he would lose the job and then try to return to horse trading and and then he would buy his horses and then sell them when he needed the money and they just and they moved year after year I have this long list of her addresses um, that I tracked down and uh, when I went to the Milwaukee city directories and um, and often it was just right down the street but it was just a series of of boarding houses Mm. um, that they lived in and, and they moved every time they couldn't pay the rent so she had this impoverished childhood her mother even wrote to a member of the family when Mildred was a teenager, I'm afraid that I'm not able to feed Mildred enough. I mean, they were really that poor that that food was also hard to come by. Um, And so um, at the same time, well, Mildred was the youngest in the family and and known as the little pip. So she had she was this very vivacious girl and uh, she would roam the streets of of, of Milwaukee on her own. and, um, and, And and she did spend a lot of time alone. And I think this is what this is when she became a reader and she also uh, and and eventually became a scholar but she um, she devoured books and she had this ambition to go to college which was from extraordinary for me to consider you know at that mm-hmm. time and um, and so uh, fortunately um, Wisconsin uh, the, the, the University of Wisconsin offered free tuition to state residents yeah. and also allowed men and women uh, both to attend. And so she had this opportunity. And so she enrolled it in university um, and, uh, and, and then got her bachelor's degree and then went on to get her master's degree. And she was very, uh, uh, she really, I think, was radicalized at the University of yeah. Wisconsin. She joined a group uh, called the Friday Nighters and, and, and basically was a, this feisty group of students who self-proclaimed communists and, and, um, and socialists and anarchists and, um, and suffragettes. And, and, uh, and, and there was a professor there who, who was, Sort of presided over these meetings, who was very inspiring to her, and um, and so she would go off to rallies, uh, and and she met a German ex- uh, student there to a graduate student. His name was Arvid Harnock, and and he would go with her to various political rallies, and and they fell swiftly in love, um, and 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 so um, they married a week after uh, she received her master's degree, and. And then shortly thereafter, as a kind of honeymoon, they hitchhiked to um, a, a small coal mining town um, in Colorado and joined the strikers and joined the picket, the picket line um, to protest poor working conditions and poor pay. So, so their, 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 their love was really, they had these, and he also had this um, great uh, belief and, um, and support for women's rights. So th- their love was very much, um, or that link between them was, was political uh, yeah. as, as well as, as, 
emotional. Um, and they're, they, they had a very big romance. And I think, and, and they, and that's, that sustained them through those years in the 1930s, as it got increasingly dangerous to, to be, you know, at the center of this resistance group. And, and, and then when the second world war started, it was, it was even more treacherous. And it was around that time, Arvid bought her a ticket to go back home and said, right. you've got to, you've got to go. You're, you're, you're not, we probably won't survive. And she refused. She, she said she basically couldn't leave him, couldn't, couldn't leave the group um, and uh, knew she was risking her life every day. But as an American, she was unlike many people in Germany, she, she could have gone back and she didn't. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, one of the things you illustrate so beautifully that I'm going to take away from reading this book is the change in her personality um, from, from this vivacious young girl to a woman who potentially is, is knows that she is in danger. Um, and you describe the paranoia of Berlin in the, the 1930s so uh, vividly. Yeah. And I, I'm never quite sure when, when we talk about paranoia, if, if you are actually in danger, <laughs> terrible danger, how is that paranoia? <laughs> right, that's true. <laughs> you know? Being like, realistic uh, about, about, yeah, um, the situation. Yeah, and, and you even get into you know, Hitler, was paranoid and so was Stalin and um, your neighbors could turn on you at any moment. Yep. Um, Tell me about, Mildred did go back to the Midwest in 1937. Yeah, yeah. And the reaction to her at the time was that she had changed. Yes. Yes, she was no no longer a great little pip uh, in anyone's eyes. She was no longer this vivacious um, girl. Uh, of course, she was a grown woman. Um, but the last time they had seen her uh, was when she was in her mid twenties, and now uh, in 1929, it was when she got on a steamer ship and crossed the, the um, Atlantic and and uh, to the North Sea and ended up in um, basically starting her life anew and as a PhD student in in Germany her mother was dying and so it appears that she realized this was probably the last chance that she could go back um, and see her mother so so in 1937 she went back Um, she she stayed for a couple weeks with one of her former um, with with a classmate at the university um, of Berlin who was really bitchy <laughs> and wrote these, <laughs> these letters, uh, uh, um, basically just criticizing her and saying, um, you know, she makes a fetish of her morning exercises and she's talking all the time about her scholarly ambitions and, um, but that she was also weird. Uh, and, and this is um, her friend, Clara. She just thought she was really weird and, and yes, paranoid and, um, and brittle. And, other classmates, she threw a big party for Mildred and, and other classmates came. And this was the, the prevalent impression among many people who then later talked about it and wrote about it, that Mildred Harnock was, was so odd and, and closed off. And when somebody came up to her at the party and said, can you, can you tell me about, you know, I heard that you went to 
to the Soviet Union. Can you tell me about that? And Mildred said, we don't talk about that <laughs> very icily. And so, I mean, unsurprisingly, her friends just were really uh, believed that she had changed. And indeed she had. She had been living in yeah. a fascist dictatorship um, since uh, Hitler became chancellor in 1933. And Germany swiftly progressed from a from a parliamentary democracy that it, where the Germans enjoyed freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, freedom of religion, freedom to protest in the streets. And, and all of that was swiftly snatched away from them um, after Hitler became chancellor and, and turned Germany into a fascist dictatorship. So- Yeah, tell, tell me yeah. a little bit about um, presenting this history that we all know on some level um, in, in terms of Hitler's rise. Yeah. Um, and his various crimes. Um, what what was worth what what were you trying to focus on narratively um, yes. in, in telling us this history? Well, I think this was this was another moment uh, in, in the writing of this book where I thought I, I'm going to make um, a an unconventional artistic choice, and I decided to write this book in the present tense. Mm -hmm. Even though this is a history, it's 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 a it's a part biography. Um, and usually, when we read histories and biographies, they're they're written in the past tense. She said this, she did this, she, but but I felt that there was an immediately there's a distance that's that's established between that's imposed on um, on the on the book and 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 the distances uh, the reader from the material and. And I and I I was I had this image of of these black and white you know those those newsreels that are sort of mm -hmm. stuttering and 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 the sepia toned and and they they all they seem so uh, irrelevant to modern day um, issues and dynamics and uh, and yet a lot of times those newsreels depict dynamics um, that are very much present in our current society and and so I I wanted to effectively show this in color and show it as it was happening right now. So, 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 so when I discussed the rise of fascism and, and you get to see this through, through Mildred's eyes, because again, she's writing about this and she's writing to her mother and saying, and because her mother has a 10th grade education, she's also explaining this in very mm -hmm. sort of um, simple terms. So, so she breaks down the, 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 the political situation in, 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 um, in, in ways that actually made it a lot easier for me to, to utilize her, her letters in, in, in a narrative way. And she talks about the, tells her mother about the Nazi party and, and, um, and, and what's going on and, and, and how people are uh, lining up to listen to, to Hitler. And, um, but I wanted to just going back to the point about the present tense. So I, so I, so I show uh, early on in the book, Mildred in, Germany um, shortly after she arrived in 1929 and, and show her going to the University of Berlin um, the last day uh, when she's fired. Um, and, and, and this is in 1932, Hitler still has not become chancellor. In fact, he ran for president and lost, mm -hmm. but he's still giving speeches and he's tremendously popular. And you know, Mildred as this American graduate student bore witness to it all. In the year before she arrived in 1928, the, uh, the Nazi party got less than 3% of the vote in their Reichstag election, the Reichstag being the Germany's parliament. Um, in 1930, two years later, the Nazi party got 18%. And in 1932, 
Two years later, the Nazi party got 37% of the vote in the Reichstag election. And, and for the first time, it was the largest party in the Reichstag. And there was a dizzying array of other political parties that represented everything from the far left to the far right. Uh, but, but, you know, Mildred saw this as, as, a, as an urgent threat. And she wrote time and time again in her letters, oh, we have to do something about this. And also we have yeah. to do something about the poor. She, she witnessed just people starving all around her and the gap between rich and poor was very pronounced. And she would see women in mink coats and, and jewels going to the opera. And then she would see beggars on the street um, right outside the, the opera and then people sort of just stepping over them. And, and, and so it was, a, it was a time of great extremes. And, uh, and, and so, uh, and, and then very shortly thereafter, um, uh, when Hitler is appointed chancellor, January 30, 1933, Mildred experienced Germany then becoming a dictatorship. And so, and that's when I felt in writing this book that I wanted to give readers a history lesson and show how that happened. Because I think a lot of people have the impression, the mistaken impression that there was some kind of bloody coup. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really it all happened legally. And um, and and the, everyone lost their constitutional rights in a, a in in a peaceful way. It was basically mm -hmm. decided. There were a series of events, and I, I won't go into them now. But 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 I but I explained them um, how each event led to the next, and, and that eventually uh, resulted in uh, Germany becoming a fascist dictatorship. But yeah, and you you talk yeah. about. I, I think most Americans know about the concept of appeasement and the idea that perhaps you could bargain with Hitler or that he was not right. going, he wanted peace, they thought. Oh, um, sure. And he kept telling people he did. And he kept telling people. Yeah. And yet at the same time, um, you make it very clear that Mildred and Arvid both have tried to warn various people, governments, yes. everyone around them, um, people for whom they've spied. <laughs> um, right. And right. no one really no one wants attention. to believe. No, unfortunately, um, the, the, no one believed the German resistance. I, I mean, I, I quote political figures who actually say, we don't even believe it exists, you know, and mm -hmm. this was felt in the United States and also um, in, um, in Britain. And Arvid went to the United States, went to DC and basically offered himself up as a source to the State Department and they refused to believe it. They just, they thought he was trying to double cross them in some way. Um, his, his cousin, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's, who's a rather well-known figure um, in, in the resistance, he was involved in the 1944 Valkyrie plot to assassinate Hitler. And we all know about that because of Tom Cruise and the movie <laughs> Valkyrie. So um, for those of you who have seen that film uh, and, and or sometimes people think of it as the, the suitcase bomb uh, plot, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer also, um, tried to warn uh, the Brits and, and um, the foreign minister uh, just refused to believe him as well. And it wasn't until after the war that uh, a number of figures, including the head of the CIA uh, said, yeah, we messed that one up. Um, we should have listened. And, and so I, I, there is this, that astonishing moment when uh, Arvid, Arvid and his colleague, Harold Schulze-Boysen had been accumulating evidence 
um, that Hitler was about to invade the Soviet Union. And both of them got jobs in the ministries in order to basically pose as Nazis and obtain top secret intelligence about Hitler's operational and military strategies and then pass them on to Hitler's enemies. And, and Mildred participated in passing this information too, both to the Soviet Union and also to the United States. And there's that, and you alluded to it to it earlier, um, Maris, there was the, this report that, that was a, sort of a summation of six months of, of intelligence that Arvid and Haro had uh, obtained uh, from the Ministry of the Economics um, on Arvid's side and from the Luftwaffe um, on Haro Schulze-Boysen's side and with, along with specific missions that were planned and, and they were compiled in this, in this report. And I show a picture of this in, in, in my book and I also show on, on that, the top page, Hitler's, uh, Hitler's, um, pardon me, Stalin's handwriting, you know, when he scrawled this profanity across the top of this report, he refused to believe that that Hitler was about to invade him. Uh, they had signed a, 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 a pact, basically, um, that they wouldn't invade each other. And, 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 um, and so he didn't think Hitler was about to double cross him. He thought that, once again, these, these, these Germans who purport to be in the resistance are just trying to swindle him and fool him. And, um, and I found this, this document in, a, in, a, in an archive in Moscow and it was a tremendous discovery. So it appears in this chapter called Stalin's Obscenity because um, anyway, <laughs> what he scrolls across it is, I, since uh, I, you, you can read it for yourself, I'm, I'll, I'll keep it clean. Um, but and this is what he scrawled across the top of this, of this report. And you know, a few days later, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. Yeah, tell me about putting this story together and being the one to perhaps, uh, not perhaps, to, to, to say, you know, look at this brave woman and look at all of the, her accomplishments. Um, how does it feel? To be related to her, you mean? No, or, um, to, just or to know to, the story? To, 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 to bring the story to the public. Yeah, I, I think, well, I think for me, it's very gratifying because it's a story that I felt I had been wanting to write for many years and then I kept putting it aside. Mm. Um, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm not quite ready yet. I think I'm gonna write another novel. <laughs> and so I <laughs> kept doing that. And, and then I, I spent six years um, on my third work of fiction and then actually set it aside in 2016 and the run up to the presidential election. And I thought, I have to write this now. I just, I felt this tremendous urgency to share her story. I, and I wanted people to know um, this history. And I, th and I thought, you know, it, this is going to be important for people to understand the risks that people took in Nazi Germany to resist. It's a small group. And I should mention, you know, her group, she called it the circle. That was her yeah. nickname for it. But it was a very diverse group. There were Jews in the group, Catholics, atheists. Um, there were factory workers and, and professors and students. 40% um, were women. And, and, uh, and, and very few people know about this group. They, did, they, they intersected with three other groups over the course of eight years. And then by 1940, they had become the largest underground resistance group in, in Berlin. And, um, and so I, I felt that, and again, as I said, almost everyone lost their lives. The women were decapitated, the men were hanged or shot. And for many years, uh, the, the history of this group was just suppressed. And in fact, the United States government suppressed 
Mildred's story, and 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 I go into it. Um, since we're running out of time, I won't go into it now. But but I go into that in the book, um, and it's really the the process of silencing her, of mm. of burying her, her her memory. Um, that's a theme that runs throughout the book, yeah. and so I felt like it's immeasurably gratifying to give her a voice um, and to share her story with readers. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Uh, before we go, Thank you. do you have some book recommendations for us? I, well, I would love to, to recommend, um, I'm so steeped in this history and, I, and I've been reading voraciously uh, you know, about the 30s and the 40s and the Second World War and memoirs and, and, um, and uh, works of narrative nonfiction and biographies and histories and and even novels about this period. So I could sort of rattle off a bunch of names, but I think that what I'd actually like to focus on is, is um, Anne Carson's book, Knox, which is, um, which really was, I keep rereading it, but this is just, this is my favorite. This is, I cherish this book so much because it's like an object and you open it up, it has this case and, and you take it out of the case and it's, and it's this accordion um, uh, sort of arrangement of, of pages and I, I read it, you know, and, and again, I, I, I read it years ago and it inspired me to approach this book in a different way. I wasn't quite sure how, but mm. I thought, I saw that it could be done in this way that was really, um, really provocative. And also um, it, it, it refuses to be one thing or another. I mean, it, Knox is basically, you can think of it as this tremendously inventive biography about her, her brother who committed suicide. And, and so she conceived of this book as a kind of um, epitaph and she incorporates bits of poetry and scraps of letters and quotations. And, you know, um, basically she addresses the fact um, that there are gaps in the story. Yeah. She doesn't know everything. And instead of hiding that and trying to write her way around it, she illustrates it. And, and, and I thought, now that's the right approach to this history as well, because uh, there will always be gaps in the story. Uh, the Nazis burned the trial transcripts. She participated uh, in a, um, Mildred underwent two treason trials. And, and the second one was, was when she was ordered to be decapitated. And, um, and, so we don't have those transcripts, but we do have the, we, we have the sentencing documents, but not the transcripts. Uh, the Nazis destroyed other documentation as we well know. Um, uh, and my own family participated in the destruction of documentation. My great grandmother will, will come full circle. This, the mm -hmm. woman who measured my height um, with the ruler in Chevy Chase, Maryland when I was nine, ordered the family to burn every letter and, and photograph of Mildred. And she did so for complex reasons. One is I think that was her way of dealing with grief. Um, and she basically told the family as much that the sooner that we bury all this and, and destroy it, the sooner we can get on with our lives, she said. Okay, that's one way somebody has of dealing with grief. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, little did she know that her own mother had hidden a stash of, of letters in the attic. And so my grandmother discovered these after my great grandmother passed away. And so you can't quite, you can't get rid of the memory. It's still there, but there are still gaps in the record. And, and so I, so going back to Ann Carson, I think that, uh, you know, she shows us that, that there's a, that, that when there are these gaps, when there's no historical record that tells us, you know, why did her, she, she was plagued with this question. Why did my brother commit suicide? 
Um, and, and I was plagued with the question about Mildred. What was she thinking, feeling? Why did she make the choices that she did? I, I, and, and she is a complicated, enigmatic woman. And, and so, and Carson showed me that, you know, when there are these gaps and when there is no answer, that, um, that, that you can allow the gaps to show you can allow the, the silences to resonate uh, just as in a good piece of poetry or music and, and, that, and that there is meaning and beauty um, in those gaps and silences. I love that. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you, Maris. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.